Good morning, everyone. Hi. I think I feel a bit like the Queen of Sheba. Do you remember how she arrived in Jerusalem? And she looked around. And she said, the half was not told me. I remember reading about the opening of your new church building all those years ago and hearing about the church through the years and just coming here this morning and, and seeing this amazing plant you've got and just seeing the life of the church community. I think I want to echo the Queen of Sheba. The half was not told me. Bless you. Bless you. And bless you too for what is, I understand, a long-standing connection with the work in Mandrit Sara. I'm not sure I realize quite how far back that goes and how real it is, and that's just fantastic. And for some of you, uh, the whole Good News Hospital project may be something you're just hearing about for the first time this morning, but I know there are a number for whom your interest goes back a long way, and it's lovely to be building on that. And I want to speak this morning from Romans chapter 1 about gospel partnership, about Christians having partnerships together for the gospel. And as I do that, I want to apply it to your connection with Mandrit Sara, which hopefully we can um, take a bit further forward and deepen uh, this morning. Also, the connections you may have with other missionaries in the present and maybe in the future in different parts of the world or even in the UK. But also the kinds of partnerships we all need in our own locations as we try to outreach and to tell other people uh, about Jesus. Romans is a good place to think about mission work because as well as being this great account of the doctrine of salvation and uh, all sorts of other things, it's basically a missionary prayer letter. Paul was writing to Rome saying he wanted to visit them on his way to do new work in Spain. And so he's queuing himself up for that visit and he's speaking to them about this great partnership that they have and how important it is to him as he goes forward into this new work in Spain. And obviously my relationship with you is not Paul's relationship to the Romans. But it sets the scene nicely, I think, for what we're doing this morning. In the early part of the letter, he says a little bit about their, uh, his uh, whole background and how he came to uh, be an apostle and so on. And I don't take too much time on it, but I thought you might find it interesting just to know a little bit more about what's led Debbie and me to this particular point when we're about to fly out to Madagascar on Wednesday with the prospect of going for 10 years. She had felt interested in mission, as she said, when she was a teenager. I think I got really interested in mission generally uh, when I was at university, but there'd always been this background of Madagascar in my family life. My grandparents sailed out to Madagascar in the middle of World War I. We were there for 20 years. My dad was born there. My dad went back in the middle of World War II, again on a ship. My father's eldest brother and his family uh, went out to Madagascar again during World War II and sailed out there, and they had almost 30 years there. So this was always in the background for me as something that was sort of part of our family life and legacy. When Debbie and I first started going out, one of the things that we talked about on our first date was mission, and it was essentially to test the other one out a bit in case the other one wasn't at all interested in mission, in which case I think that would have been it. Well, it was our... 34th wedding anniversary yesterday, and uh, that wasn't it. We did get married, and we thought very seriously about working um, in uh, cross-cultural mission work uh, in those early years of marriage. And uh, we, we were serious about exploring it, and we thought very seriously about going to Madagascar. 
We went to study in the United States and um, had a great time there, and then got a very clear call to come back to the UK and to serve in Cambridge, where we've been it's almost 27 years now. All that time, Debbie really loved the international side of church life, and she pioneered and led an international women's group, which did great outreach uh, through the church. And we did a number of short-term mission visits to support mission partners. We got, got this connection with the work in the Good News Hospital through uh, our daughter and another member of the church. We went out there, and we thought it was great. And we came back, and we talked up the project and encouraged other people to go. And a couple from our church, who are both doctors, decided that they would go. And that was uh, all happening. And one of the uh, leaders of the hospital came to speak in Cambridge at a tiny little meeting before an evening service while lockdown was still happening in 21. And I nearly didn't go to this meeting. I thought, I'm tired. There's an evening service. I know all about this project already. I know what he's going to say. I don't need to go. Do you ever have those kind of feelings about something at church? Anyway, and then I thought, I better go because they'll notice if I'm not there. <laughs> Anyone else ever get that feeling about church? Perhaps you're here this morning and you nearly didn't come and you thought, well, Steve will notice if I'm not here, so I better be here. Well, that was my motivation for going to one of the most important moments of my life. Because I went in and sat down and the bloke stood up and started speaking and immediately I was overcome with this deep sense that God really loved this project that it expresses in deed through the hospital and word through the preaching the heart of the gospel, of good news, of God's grace, of his healing, of his love. I was completely overcome. It was terribly embarrassing. I started crying uncontrollably. Fortunately, I was at the back, and I kept it quiet. But it just went on and on and on. I thought, what's going on? This is extraordinary. And it, it tailed off a bit. And then the guy got up to, um, the, the chair of the meeting got up and asked some questions. And they said, we're looking for a Bible teacher. And it was as though electric electrodes were attached to my body. I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much. Preachers usually exaggerate. But I don't think I am. I, I was almost physically shaking. And I just thought, well, you clearly want us to investigate this, Lord. Because this clearly matters to you. And you clearly want it to matter to us. Anyway, next day, I shared this with Debbie, and we, we were recalling that when I proposed to Debbie, there was a slight hesitation all those years ago, but when I said, let's go to Madagascar, she immediately said, yes! There's no hesitation this time. And so we've explored it over the last 18 months and have concluded that we should bring to an end our long time in Cambridge, that we should say goodbye to lots of dear friends, that we should deeply disappoint some of our family who would love us to stay in the UK, and we should go out there. And that's because the gospel matters so much. And what we see Paul describing in the first part of our passage is the kind of togetherness that this kind of enterprise requires. You can have the first slide up. Yeah, we've got togetherness. He's speaking here about his relationship with those he's in partnership with, and his prayers for them, and his thanksgiving for them, and his desire that there can be mutual benefit in their relationship. Now, I want to say to you, your relationship with the Good News Hospital is something that in the same way is treasured by those who know about it over there 
and those who are involved uh, in the uh, charity, the Friends of Manjutsara Trust in the UK. It's a special thing when a church and people in a church have that kind of relationship of togetherness. And one of the things that you always see in Paul's life as well is that togetherness is based on teams doing things together. So if we have the, there's a poster of the hospital. Yes, here we are. Uh, outside the hospital, there is this kind of banner poster, nicely printed, and you can see the different people on it. Do you notice the fact there's only one white face there? Well, the hospital is a partnership between Malagasy people who are in the majority, and the whole thing is owned by a um, Malagasy uh, denomination, the Bible Baptist denomination. There is one white surgeon there. There are white people part of it, but it's very much a partnership. And that's the sort of thing that you're supporting and praying for. Not just lots of white people going in to sort out those who are non-white. A partnership between Malagasy and non-Malagasy in the cause of the gospel. And the slogan on the poster says in Malagasy, happy to care for you, sharing God's love with you. Just think for a moment of those who are not in Chessington, but who you support. It could be Good News Hospital, it could be other people. Realize how precious that is to them. Think also for a moment of your own attempts to reach out in your neighborhood, community, and workplace. And think about those who you can partner with in that. Paul always worked in teams. And outreach to people is typically teamwork. There's a member of our church who I remember coming up to university same time as me. We were in the same year in the same college. And there was a group of us who witnessed to him. And he would say now that he became a Christian, not just because I was witnessing to him or one of the others, Graham or Tim or whoever they were, were witnessing to him. It was a team of people who together were witnessing to him. Who could that be in your life? Let's skip the next slide and go on to the next point, indebtedness. And I'm, I'm, I'm moving over a lot of Paul's language without really engaging with it here, you'll realize. And we're on to verse 14. Paul says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks. He said he wants to go to Rome because he's so keen to be able to share the gospel with people who are not Jews, who are Gentiles. And then he refines it a little bit. He says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Now, we need to decode this a little bit. The Greeks were the elites, cultural, educated people who thought that they were very clever and wise and better than everyone else. And they divided the world into the, the Greek part, which was them and everyone else who wasn't them. I've been in Cambridge 26 years, and I can say it now. That's how Cambridge thinks of the world. And to some extent, probably all of us do. We divide it up. And Paul says that he is burdened and obliged and responsible to take the gospel to both halves. We've spent 
all these years in the modern equivalent of the Greeks. Because that's what Cambridge is. The church, our church is, is not all Cambridge students and Cambridge graduates, but there's a heck of a lot of them in the church. And it's been an amazing privilege. I mean, they're all much cleverer than me, so I feel completely outclassed academically all the time, but you kind of get used to that after a bit and realize they're all normal underneath. Um, but it, it's been the most amazing ministry privilege. And the Lord has now said to me, that's it. You're done there. Your responsibility there is ended. And I want you to go to some people who are different. And I want you to take seriously, in a way you haven't before, that I have a heart for the poor. And he's been impressing this on me. Because, like it or not, I've spent 25 years plus ministering to some of the most privileged people in the history of the human race, in all sorts of ways. And now he says, I want you to remember that the gospel is for the poor. And the gospel is for remote regions. And the gospel is for forgotten regions. And the gospel is for people in villages where they don't have proper toilets. And when there isn't much education. And I want to have this complete break from what you've been doing and take you somewhere totally different. And I want you to feel, he's been saying, a sense of indebtedness that you owe them something. And you simply owe it to them as one human being to another. Because when we've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have something that we must share. And that's part of what lies behind our going. This sense of being moved to a very different place to people who God loves just as much. Now let me ask you, who are the Greeks and the non-Greeks in your world, your locality. We were sharing this in a church in rural Suffolk, not far from Newmarket, and I thought I'd try and be all local and sort of clever, and I said, well, if you were thinking of planting a church in Newmarket, the equivalent would be you have to have a church that reaches out to the horsey people and the non-horsey people. You know, Newmarket's terribly horsey. In Newmarket, horses get right of way through the town. Absolutely true. You have to give way to a horse. But there's the horsey people and the non-horsey people in Newmarket. I didn't know whether I got that quite right. It was a bit of a chance. I could have upset someone. But everyone was nodding. I think I probably did get it right. So who's that around here? I don't know the answer to that. And it may be a number of different things. But the call of the passage is a sense of burden and obligation to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. Whatever that looks like, in our locations. And that sense of indebtedness means a willingness to engage with all sorts of things. I think we've got some pictures here of um, bikes and mud and villages. Can you see these things? I'm not an action man type. I mean, I like running a bit, but I mean, I, I can't mend cars. And I, you know, the idea of being on a motorbike I'm not going to have to do it. This isn't really me. When we thought about being missionaries back in the 90s, in the end we decided not to and go to Cambridge. And my mum said to Debbie, oh, I'm so relieved. She said, Julian's not practical enough to be a missionary. <laughs> and I've gone backwards since then too. 
And it, yeah, it's tough, and it's tough leaving the family behind. There's a sacrifice there. But you know, there's also an eagerness. That's what Paul speaks about in verse 15. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. That sense of a God-given call to share Christ. That sense of indebtedness and of obligation. He allowed it to release within him an energy and a zeal and a passion. And you know, I think those things are there for every Christian to some degree, but I think they can get lost. I think they can cool. I think we can be distracted. I think it can become... Routine, even some evangelistic activities can become routine. And one of the things about this whole strange sort of thing in our lives that's happened has been a reinvigoration of some things that I think for me had got a bit routine and maybe a bit cool. An eagerness just to tell people about Jesus Christ. An eagerness to say to people, actually, God is part of my life and actually I'm doing this because of God. And actually, eternal issues matter. I, was, I, I have a friend, and I, I, I was running with him. He, he's a, sort of a, a kind of a doctor, and we were talking about the hospital. And I said, I need to say to you, Christoph, that as well as this hospital being a really good humanitarian enterprise in its own right, doing all sorts of good things for people's this-worldly needs, it's the eternal thing that really matters to me. It's eternal destinies. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I do know that. But I think I'd lost some of the confidence sometimes in those kind of casual social, social situations that saying that kind of thing. Some of the eagerness had gone, and somehow the Lord's brought a bit of that back. What about you this morning? Are you finding a resistance in your heart to being, having your mind taken away from Chessington to somewhere so far away? I, you know, another thing to add, I, I'm too full. I, I, don't, I don't want to be taken I, in my mind, far away from where I am. I, I want to, I, I, there's too much happening right here. What about the right here then? Some of your eagerness to share Christ, as mine has become at times. Got a bit routine or diminished. What is the Lord doing in you as you hear these words? I'm eager to preach the gospel. Could you say that? And if you can't, in all sincerity, say that this morning, then will you get in tune with that? That sense of inhibility, inhibition, and just say to the Lord, I, actually, I can't quite say that this morning, but I'll tell you what, Lord, I'm eager to be eager. I want to want. Will you make that your prayer, if nothing else from this morning? I'm not there, but I want to be there. That's one of the things that holds you back. And this is very common, I think, in our country at the moment, is a sense of um, shame about the gospel. Paul comes on to that when we read verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The kinds of cultural pressures that we're facing at the moment and just the sneering things that are said about Christians and Christian belief all the time 
are really very difficult. I had an uncle who died recently, and he, he, he left something to be read out at his funeral. And he talked about his own journey from Christian faith into atheism. And he, he, said, he, he said, the resurrection, which I regard as the most ludicrous of a number of irrational Christian beliefs. And I thought, is that really a kind thing to say at a funeral when there are grieving people who are Christians and you're sneering at their beliefs as ludicrous and they can't get into a dialogue with you, which you never allowed in your life, and now you're wrecking or affecting the funeral by sneering at their belief in the resurrection. There's a lot of sneering, and there's a lot of reasons why we can feel ashamed, but Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, although in his day there were all sorts of reasons to be ashamed of it. It's not like it was amazingly credible and uh, persuadable in his, his day. There are all sorts of reasons in his day why it wasn't, but he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? And what he majors on is the fact that there's a power there. He could have said, because it's true, and that would have worked just as well. But he chooses to focus on the fact that there is power there. It is the power of God that brings salvation. There is something in the message of Jesus Christ brought home to people's hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit. There is a power there that you can't find anywhere else. It is just nowhere else. There's healing. There's rebuilding. There's bridge building. There's cleansing. There's bringing back to life. And all with a wonderful message of forgiveness and reconciliation. There is power there. Just think of those who are baptized recently in your church. A power in each of their lives greater than the power of the sun or the biggest star in the universe. A power there. There's a power in your life. Which is the power of God to save you. And I just found, I found myself so encouraged at the thought of being able to go out and share the gospel. I mean, it's, in many ways, it's completely ludicrous, um, to borrow that word from my uncle, to think of me at my age trying to learn two languages, as well as having to brush up my French. I'd be operating in three languages, none of which I speak, two of which I haven't got a clue of at the moment. And they're going out to remote villages, albeit with a team again, but they want me to do some gospel preaching to people whose culture is completely different. In many ways, it does sound completely balmy, but the Lord seems to have called us. The Malagasy folk out there seem to want us to do it. What encourages me is that there is a power in the gospel. And that this power has actually been at work in and around Mandritsara in an amazing way. So 30 years ago, there was one church, one, one Baptist church, which fitted in someone's front room. There were 12 people in the room. Now, that church has several hundred members, and the gospel has spread through this region, so there are now 60 or 70 village churches of varying sizes. You saw one of them. It's not huge, but it is a church. 60 or 70 churches. And many, many more for us to go to and explore. And that leads to a kind of bullishness. Have we got this picture of the, yeah, of the zebu? 
the, the, the ox. I was wondering what word to use for not being ashamed. And not being ashamed is a great phrase, but you want to kind of turn it around and make it positive. And I like the word bullish. Because uh, when you're bullish about something, you're, you're positive and energetic and you feel you've got a certain power behind you. These, um, these ox are called zebu, and uh, they're, they're big beasts. You wouldn't want to meet one on a kind of alley that didn't have any width to it. They're enormous. You, you have to get out of the way. And I think the Lord wants us, even in our day, to have a bullishness about the gospel. To realize it remains the power of God's salvation. To realize this is a great day to be doing church and outreach and ministry and church planting in the UK. There are problems, but it's a great time to be doing it. To realize that churches are being planted. To realize that people are being saved. To realize that people are being raised up in ministry. And in case you're feeling a bit ashamed or a bit discouraged or more sheepish than bullish, let me invite you again just to let the Word speak to you about this. It is the power of God's salvation. And then finally, and I'll have to rush through this, he gives his explanation, verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we have a picture of a man in a wheelchair, if we can get that up. This is a guy called Lammy, a lovely guy who always smiles. He was uh, converted through the hospital uh, project and the outreach. Uh, we think he has cerebral palsy, and they managed to get him this wheelchair, and he wheels himself uh, around in it. He has received Christ, but he's not been healed of his cerebral palsy. The hospital's humanitarian and medical and educational work is great, absolutely fantastic. A right and proper expression of the heart of Christ, doing what Christ himself did, making a real difference in people's lives. But none of those things is complete and final. In the end, they're only temporary. But for someone who has heard the gospel, the consequences are eternal because he's received the righteousness of God. He's had his own filthy rags covered, just as mine were, by Christ's righteousness. He's reconciled to God for all eternity. And there lies before him the prospect of the new heavens and the new earth in which only righteousness dwells, where the righteousness of God is in all and is, is everything, and in which, of course, he'll be bouncing around like a kangaroo. This is why we need not be ashamed of the gospel. This is why we give ourselves to mission in partnership and in going. This is why it's important that people still keep going into mission in the UK and overseas, and why we receive people from overseas to come and work in the UK. It is because without the righteousness of God, we are lost forever, condemned by our own sin, with the righteousness of Christ. Whatever troubles us in this life, we know we have the prospect of a perfect, glorious life in the new heavens and the new earth. And as someone once said, one second of that glory will wipe out a lifetime 
of suffering. We go very much aware of our weakness, aware of our need, aware of the immensity of the challenge, and so dependent on folk like yourselves who support us in prayer, and your support for the project in general. So important, so helpful. And so on behalf of everyone in the team, I just want to say thank you. And I pray that if it's the Lord's will, you will take that forward perhaps this morning. And there may be uh, times when you pray for us and remember us, and we'll try and feed back to you and tell you what the Lord has been doing. Let's take a moment to be still. And just to reflect on perhaps the one thing or the one or two things in which the Lord has particularly worked in us this morning. And say to him that we've received and we want to receive what he's been saying and doing and giving. 